This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In an election year like this, there's renewed focus on money in politics. That's why Congresswoman Diana DeGette, a Denver Democrat, is calling attention to the Government by the People Act. The bill would reward congressional candidates who refuse big money. DeGette joined me Tuesday from Washington, D.C. to explain the plan. It's basically a public financing bill. Candidates would have to raise $50,000 from 1,000 in-state individuals, and then they would qualify for public financing. And they would also get matching for the donations that these small donors give. What it would really do is it would take away the influence of these very large donors and put it right back into the people, and it would also put members of Congress back into their districts to raise money rather than raising money from PACs and big donors. And members of Congress then would have to sign something of a pledge, uh, wouldn't they, not to take certain kinds of money? Right. Members of Congress would then agree to forego any donation over $1,000. Then they would get some matching funds from the federal government for every single one of those individual donations of a dollar to a hundred and fifty dollars, it would be matched by the government at a six to one basis. And people would get tax credits then for the donations that they made. Let's say somebody wrote me a check for fifty dollars and then I could get a six-way match, suddenly that turns into real money. And there's a couple of other proposals that I think uh, would go hand-in-hand with it. I think that the citizens of this country are really ready for some changes to the way we finance campaigns, especially after the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United. We'll talk about what you think could go hand in hand with this proposal in just a bit. But uh, some follow-up questions here. You talk about this as giving the choice back to the people. Don't the people ultimately have that choice at the ballot box? They do have that choice at the ballot box, but there's a real feeling in this country that the way we finance campaigns has been totally skewed. And average citizens, they can't give donations of $2,400. And they certainly can't do independent expenditures like some of these large corporations have been doing. And so what this does is it says to somebody, if you want to write a $25 or $50 check, your voice can be heard because the candidates are going to then get matching funds. It gives them incentives to raise their money within their states. And then the candidates agree to forego this other money. Of course, it's very expensive these days to run for Congress. There's TV ad buys. Uh, Would this be enough money to fund a modern campaign? And do you see its effect as reducing the overall cost of campaigning if enough candidates agree to it? Well, let's do some math. Let's say that um, somebody wanted to have a party and they wanted to invite 10 people to each give $50 to me or another congressional candidate at that party. Well, that's going to raise about $500. That doesn't buy very many TV ads. But let's say you multiply that by six, then you're starting to talk about some real money. You're starting to talk about $3,000. So rather than go to a PAC or a very wealthy donor to get $3,000, you could have a room full of 
10 people who each wrote a $50 check. And this has been effective in several states that have done it uh, at the state level. And so we think that um, this really brings the power back to the people. And we we do think that there would be enough money for campaigns. And uh, Congressman Sarbanes and I also think that the members of Congress would like this a lot more because they would actually get to spend a lot of time with their constituents, whereas right now they might be spending more of their time fundraising. If they would like it so much, why hasn't it gone anywhere since it was first introduced in 2014? Well, as you might have noticed, I'm not in charge just now. <laughs> no, and, <so. laughs> un- <laughs> right. And unfortunately, the Republican majority in Congress, this is just not a priority for them. This is not how they raise their money. This is not what they think. And so even though we have 160 co-sponsors on the bill, we do have a Republican. We'd like to get more Republicans co-sponsoring the bill. We think it's what their constituents would want. Uh, But it's been hard to get this through a Republican-led Congress, just frankly. The one Republican is uh, Walter Jones of North Carolina. I want to point out, you've gotten PAC money to stay in Congress. Unlike Donald Trump and some others, I don't have personal wealth. So I do take PAC money, but I also really try to focus on individual donations. For a candidate like me, in a relatively safe seat, it's hard to convince people that they should give donations to me at a level that would help me run my race. And so I would like nothing more than to uh, say, I'm going to focus my fundraising on small dollar donations and, and letting people know that they can aggregate that money and we'll get the federal match and and I'll be able to fund my campaign. That, that kind of leads to my other bill that I think is really important hand-in-hand with that, and that's the Disclose Act. And what that bill does is it really shines the light onto what donations people are making. If you required members of Congress to report PAC donations within a certain period of time from receiving them, it would really shine the light on some of these fundraising activities And I think it would make some politicians think twice about some of the donations they're taking and when they're taking them. Now, there are reporting requirements already, so this would uh, change the, the regime, I guess? Well, right now, for every quarter in a political cycle, you have to report all of your donations at the end of the quarter until the last few weeks of the election, where you have to report donations over $1,000 within a, a certain period of time. So what I think is that you could do this throughout the election. We now have very sophisticated electronic reporting ability. People could easily report a donation 24, 48 hours after they've received it. Why does this matter? I have seen members of Congress who will have a big fundraiser with an industry the night before a major vote. And if they were required to report those donations within a short period of time, some of the government watchdog organizations could see exactly who was giving them the money and then could correlate it to that vote. I'm not saying people always vote the way those industries want, but I think it would make people think really hard about raising money from those industries right when an important vote was pending. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Congressman Diana DeGette, a Denver Democrat, about uh, 
her proposals, which include the Disclose Act and another that she calls the Government by the People Act. And that's right. Congressman, uh, I want to go to this idea of super PACs. So in a world in which there can be these outside groups, they cannot coordinate with campaigns. Uh, they can't say vote for or against this person, but they can they can come pretty close, you know, to that line of making it clear uh, what issues they advocate for. Uh, in the world of super PACs, uh, is it quaint to suggest that candidates simply say no to PAC money? This is another area that I think is ripe for disclosure. The Supreme Court in the Citizens United case basically said that corporations are people, which I I frankly find to be one of the most ludicrous Supreme Court decisions ever. And and I actually think there's a huge opportunity now um, with this vacancy on the Supreme Court to fill it with somebody who would review that unfortunate decision. In the meantime, what we can do, though, is we can force the uh, proponents of these shadowy groups to come out into the open and to disclose their activities too. Let's say somebody ran a whole series of ads saying that I was a terrible person and a bad mom and then paid for by Americans for Truth and Justice. What I think is that Americans for Truth and Justice should have to disclose who the chief funders are, who set it up, and all of that. Um, There's nothing about Citizens United that says that these shadowy organizations shouldn't have to Uh, say who is behind them. You call these shadowy groups, let me say they operate on both the left and the right. You know, there are many people who say, why should um, someone who calls you a bad parent have to disclose who they are? Uh, You know, maybe maybe it's, uh, it's your neighbor in Denver, and they would face real backlash if others found out that they were advocating for a particular cause that was unpopular in that neighborhood. Uh, doesn't someone have the right to call you as a public figure, an elected official, a bad parent and not have to put their name on it? So in the general discourse, people, an individual, a person, if they said something, their name would be on it. Where under Citizens United, these shadowy organizations, they're living behind the illusion of some kind of a good government organization. To go back to this idea that you would like to get big money out of politics um, as much as the Government by the People Act could accomplish that, do you think changing how congressional campaigns are financed would affect who runs for Congress? I've talked to a lot of women. I've talked to a lot of people of color who say, you know, I'd, I'd really like to run for Congress. I think I have good ideas I could bring. But the idea of raising two, three, four million dollars is really daunting to them. In my own situation, the first time I ran for Congress, people said, well, Diana uh, has a lot of good ideas, but she, she doesn't have the ability to raise the money from business interests. Well, fortunately, I was able to get the endorsement of Emily's List. Women from all around the country sent me $100. And I was able to also raise a lot of money from small donors in my district. I was able to compete. But um, it's very difficult for candidates who aren't personally wealthy or who don't have sort of traditional ties to the business community to run for these seats. 
By the same token, could this be,、uh, in some ways, a waste of taxpayer dollars if it encourages really non-viable candidates to to get well, into races? I, I don't think that that candidates who would qualify for the federal funds would be non-viable, because just to meet the threshold, you would have to get contributions from a thousand people. Totaling fifty thousand dollars—that's not easy to do. You would have to have fairly broad appeal to be able to convince a thousand people to write you checks. Do you think this would erase an incumbent's advantage, or at least some of an incumbent's advantage? Yes, I do. I think that what would happen would would be. If an if people didn't feel like an incumbent was doing a good job, they could go out. They could find a thousand people to give fifty thousand dollars, and then that incumbent would have to do the same thing. It, it would make incumbents go out into the community, raise the money, and and have to prove their case. I think that's really healthy. Anything that you'll do to try to convince more Republicans besides the one to sign on to this? Congressman Sarbanes and I have,、uh, since his visit to Denver, we've been talking strategies. We may not be able to convince anybody before this election, but I will tell you, after the shock and awe that we're about to see in this election, I feel confident we'll be able to convince more of our colleagues that this is the right way to go. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Congresswoman Diana Degette, a Denver Democrat, spoke with us Tuesday. She's a sponsor of a bill called the Government by the People Act. The goal is to counter big money's influence in politics. You can learn more at cprnews.org. Just ahead, why three commissioners in Chaffee County, Colorado, quite publicly left the Republican Party. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Chaffee County in central Colorado has three commissioners, and last week they all defected from the Republican Party. They met at the clerk's office in Salida to change their registration to unaffiliated. Frank Holman is one of those county commissioners. He's on the phone with us. And hi, Frank. Good morning. What statement are you making here? I can start with the reason that I changed. I can't speak for the other commissioners, but I struggled with this decision for some time and concluded that I really needed to make a statement, and that was regarding the condition of politics in our country. I'd watched with sadness and dismay as the gridlock in Washington, D.C. continued to worsen, and felt our representatives had sold their souls in order to be, continue being reelected. Something needs to change if we hope to save our country. Can you give me an example of something of, of an issue that you think reflects this? I can. I, I、uh, believe the problem with our government currently is that our president and other elected representatives in our nation's capital capital are not performing with the country's best interest as their focus. They Are all driven from both the Democrat and Republican parties, as well as by lobbyists. All of them appear to be running for re-election from their first day on the job, and are basing their decisions on what might get them re-elected, rather than working together to solve problems and develop good legislation. And I believe it... these issues lead to gridlock and poor legislative practices. And so, your defection from the Republican Party was it less a statement about the Republican Party in general as it was about party politics in general? It sounds like you lay blame at the the feet of both major parties. I certainly do. How long have you been a Republican? 
since the late 70s. Since the late 70s. Was it a tough decision to make? The, yes, it was. It was, it was uh, very hard for me to make that decision. I, I've always been a, uh, certainly a conservative, and I have always felt that uh, the Republican, or since I changed to Republican, I used to be a Democrat, but I, I've always felt that they, their, their beliefs and, and uh, values are much closer to those I hold dear and can support. Now, you said that you didn't want to speak for the two other county commissioners in Chafee County, but you did coordinate with them. Um, how did the conversations evolve? How did you finally agree to do this together? We simply decided that uh, we needed to make a statement regarding politics at our county level as well as the national level and simply walked down to the clerk's office and asked to change our affiliation. And do you think that same dysfunction uh, that you perceive in Washington is is what motivated them? Did they mention that to you? I believe it is, in part, at least. Does that show up in county government? I'd like to get to this issue of, of um, how this manifests uh, in uh, policy decisions or in your daily life. Is there something specific that you'd point to there in Salida uh, that you think reflects the frustration you feel? Not so much at the local level, I don't think. I I believe that all three of us have uh, governed with the best interest of the citizens of Chafee County at heart, always have. And occasionally we get pressure from one side or the other regarding the decision, but our decisions are based solely on what we think is best for the county. So being unaffiliated and representing everyone makes that a little more clear-cut and simple, certainly, for us. Hmm. You are not alone as you move away from uh, any political party, in your case, the Republican Party. Colorado has more people registered as unaffiliated than as Republicans or Democrats. And according to the Pew Research Center, the state has seen a big shift to independent status among people who tend to lean Republican. And this is interesting, among voters 50 to 64 years old. So this is not just uh, a younger phenomenon. This is roughly your demographic, 50 to 64. Did you uh, see this as a trend among your peers, I, I guess, beyond the other two county commissioners? Not necessarily with my peers, but I've found that after we changed our affiliation, there have been a number of people at the county level who have gone in and registered as unaffiliated also. They, they've uh, spoken out on, on how they believe what we did is the right thing and that we are truly representing everyone. I, I, I really think we need some change. I want to talk about the Republican presidential race. Uh, obviously, it has narrowed since yesterday after Marco Rubio dropped out. That leaves Trump, Kasich, and Cruz. Is the tone of the presidential race a part of your decision as well? Yes, it is. How so? I think it's a sad state of affairs that what we've watched in the, throughout the debates and the, the race uh, are really disturbing. Can you point to something in particular, and are you making reference just to the Republican side, or do you think that that's borne out in, in the debates uh, on both sides? It's certainly on both sides. I, I, uh, I have some very strong beliefs on, on 
some things we can do to fix this. Um, but it is both sides, yes. All right. Well, it sounds like you, you have Unfortunately, a... the, the candidates, rather than telling us what they will do once they're in office, they seek out problems with the other candidates, and that doesn't help any of us. How would you fix this? Is there something that would uh, send you back to a party, the Republican Party or perhaps the Democratic Party? Well, I would start first with encouraging folks to consider moving to uh, registering unaffiliated, and then we would develop a document which spells out our Fix Washington solutions. I, I think candidates for office should have an opportunity to sign an agreement of support for the Fix Washington document if they want our vote. Okay. And if members of the Democrat and Republican Party won't support our Fix Washington steps, we could start a new party that will. Very bri- if we elect good people who do this work for us, we, I believe we can get our country back on good, solid footing. Very briefly, with the government you, that works for you us. Give me an example of, of a policy in, in this Fix Washington plan, just uh, quickly. I do. I can. I, I have eight steps, and the first one is to ban all lobbying, lobbying and lobbyists from Washington, D.C. Is that realistic? Number two... Is that is is the first one? I think it is. I think it is. I I think there's probably a place for lobbying, but I think it should be with the voters, not with our representatives. Okay, give us step two. And I'll explain why. Oh, go ahead. Give. I'm so sorry. We have a bit of a delay in the connection. Give us step two before we go. We 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 just have a little bit of time. I'll just go through the rest of the steps. Uh, Number two is to limit the time in office for senators, congressmen, and the president to one eight-year term. Number three would be space staggered general elections for senators and representatives at four-year intervals. Number four is to schedule votes of confidence elections two years into senators' and congressmen's terms. And if these elected representatives don't get the majority of the vote, they will vacate their position immediately. The seat would then be refilled with a candidate selected through a vote of the electorate at the next election. Number five is to reduce the size of elected representatives' districts to ensure these elected officials have the time and ability to stay directly in touch with their constituents. Frank, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to stop you there. Here's, here's, Here's my promise to you. We're going to post the remaining list to our website. Okay cprnews.org. We have perhaps wet people's appetite. I I thank you for sharing your perspective. Frank Holman is one of three uh, Chafee County commissioners who left the Republican Party and became unaffiliated. Now something interesting on the Democratic side. This has to do with caucus results in Baca County. That's in the state's southeast corner. There, neither Hillary Clinton nor Bernie Sanders won in Colorado's caucuses. The winner, with 18 out of 47 votes, was uncommitted. We called up Dr. Bob Morrow, chairman of the Baca County Democrats, to ask about this. It's nothing unusual for there to be a a large number of uncommitted uh, at our caucuses. They just feel they'll watch and see how things go. And then when they, after the National Assembly, they'll just decide who's a candidate, and then they'll make their decision who they're going to support. Morrow believes Democrats in Baca County aren't necessarily dissatisfied with their choices, and he expects come November, most caucus goers will vote for the Democratic nominee, whoever that is. This is a pretty conservative part of the country and the state, especially down here, because we're still kind of in the Bible Belt. And so, you know, the, the Democrats kind of feel a little pressure. Uh, so the ones that, that come and are participated are pretty committed. 
that doesn't mean they won't change their mind and vote across cross lines. Uh, but generally speaking, the ones who are there now are pretty committed. That is the chair of the Democratic Party in Baca County, Colorado, Bob Morrow. Coming up, the dangers of being an environmental activist abroad. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In some countries, environmental activists can be murdered because of their work. Take Berta Casades, for example. She was murdered in her home in Honduras earlier this month. Police say she was shot during an attempted robbery, but her family believes it was an assassination. And there's good reason for that belief. She had gotten death threats for high-profile campaigns against dams, loggers, and plantation owners. Casades, however, had fierce international support, including from Global Green Grants Fund in Boulder, which sponsors small-scale environmental projects abroad. Justine Reed is the fund's vice president. She met and worked with Casades before her death. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. And I want to start actually with news you received this morning that another activist you supported in Honduras as well Ah, was shot four times in the face. Is that is that correct? Nelson Garcia? Yes, that's the word I got as I was entering, actually, the building for this interview. It's very shocking. He was one of Berta's colleagues with Sincopin, um, and we don't have a lot of details, but um, Nelson was a father of five, and he was murdered, I believe, last night. And we appreciate and assume it was associated with the work that Sincopin is doing. Sincopin. Tell us about Sincopin. Copin. Sorry. Um, Copin is... Um, a group in Honduras. It's a group that's representing the Linka Indians. They work on environmental issues facing their community. So this is indigenous people. There. Indigenous people, um, an indigenous group in in Honduras that works um, around issues that you mentioned. That Copin has been fighting for a while, which is just being displaced from their land, access to water, access to their agricultural systems in which they used to survive and live. And it sounds like there are very powerful forces aligned against them. Murderous forces, potentially. Yes. I think there's a lot of money and in the privatization of natural resources and the mining and the use of the natural resources that the global um, economy seems to thrive in, on and need um, extensive amounts of. And those are going into these communities more and more frequently of indigenous peoples and rural peoples to – as Nations are hungry to find these resources and to profit from them. They're privatizing a lot of the land and the resources. And again, this is the the Lenca people. What motivated, uh, I guess, both Garcia and Caceres to work with them? Well, they are Lenca Indians. Um, so they were working within their communities to fight the realities that they were all facing on the ground, which is for some of these dams, they were looking at having people displaced. They were looking at literally loss of access to the water that they need, not only for drinking water, but for agricultural purposes, for a variety of purposes. So they were fighting for the right to have a say over whether they were going to be relocated, whether they wanted the dam in the first place. The Gualcarque River that was in um, Basin that was part of the dam that was most recently being um, advocated against by Copin is a sacred river for these people. They use it for a lot of purposes, not only for their livelihoods, but for the livelihood of their children and the future of their people. Well, help us with some context about Honduras in particular. So Global Witnesses, this is an advocacy group that tracks crimes against journalists and activists, says 109 environmentalists have been killed in Honduras between 2010 and 2015. 
uh, that is the highest per capita rate for activists in the world, as I understand it. What makes that country so dangerous? Because these issues of development pressure versus uh, the rights and needs of indigenous people. That's not exclusive to Honduras by any means. No. In fact, we we um, exercise a lot of those environmental rights right here in Colorado in our own country as we're facing all kinds of environmental issues that impact our quality of life and livelihood even in this country and in this state. So it is definitely not unique to Honduras. And I can't speak to why Honduras in particular politically may be um, one of the more challenging places. I can tell you what Berta shared with me about what she felt. And that was that this was a post-colonial governmental system that was very oppressive and patriarchal in its nature that really um, wanted to, it was oppressive and wanted to grab these resources in an effort to raise the wealth and the profile of Honduras. They were privatizing and grabbing and providing mining rights to international corporations and local corporations at a very fast scale without free, prior, and informed consent of the people impacted, that they um, were more inclined to simply push them out of the way or ignore and silence um, those protests or those voices saying, we want to, we matter, we want to we be part of this. And there is a backdrop to this of a military coup, a changing government, isn't there? Yes, yes. There was um, fairly recently and a new government put in place. And I know that, again, this is not, Global Green Grants is not a politically oriented organization. We do environmental funding. So what I can tell you is what Berta has shared with me in terms of feeling that the president that was ousted um, in that change of government was much more concerned about the welfare of the people. And he was someone they felt that they could work with more effectively and that the replacement of him by by this more militaristically focused um, government is has been very dangerous and very oppressive, and she felt very much threatened by them. Did the U.S. take a stand on this coup? It's my understanding that we sort of helped negotiate some aspects of the transition of government. Um, I'm sure there's a variety of perspectives on um, the right and wrong of things that may have happened. I do know that Berta held the U.S. somewhat accountable for bringing in a government that she thought was not in the best interest of the local people. We actually have Casades' words on this. This is thanks to an interview that your group did at a conference in 2014, and this is how she described the current situation in Honduras. In a country that has been colonized, like Honduras, the system that's at use is a repressive military system. Against this homicidal system or predatory system, we fight with our lives. We fight with our lives, and she lost hers. To go back to this bigger idea that environmental activists in many countries face death, do you think she was aware that, that her life might be on the line? Um, absolutely. Actually, in ways that until she died, I realized I really wasn't um, aware. Berta was very clear about the risks that she was taking. She was very conscious, and so was her community and um, coping in general of the cost and the price she might have to pay for acting out. She um, was as prepared as anyone can be, and I just found myself so um, shocked when I heard about her assassination because Berta, unlike many of the activists that we work with, had her name recognition on a global stage through the awards that she'd received and some of the um, light that had been shined on the work that she'd been done, had done in the past 15 years. And really, I thought that would provide her with some sort of mantle of protection. Yeah, that that if the international community were looking, she 
should be safer, but that it didn't appear to be the case. No, it, these perpetrators still seem to be able to act with such impunity when they do these things. And I always think about the arrest of the people like Nelson Garcia, who... Uh, lost his life last night, and others, these names that we will never know, and these people who are out there fighting for what we have to remember is just, so why are these people speaking out, and what is it that they're really trying to do, and what is so threatening about a group of people saying, we live here, we we get sustenance from this land, this is how we survive, we've been here for hundreds of years, we have a right to a voice, we have a right to free prior and informed consent, we have a right to be represented and to go to these meetings and be part of this decision-making. And as a community, we get to come together and decide how do we want to respond to whatever it is that's coming in. Are they wanting to sell off land for large you know, plantations? Are they wanting to dam a river? Are they wanting to extract oil and gas resources, whatever the issue may be. I'll say that Global Green Grants in Boulder does provide some backing for these environmentalists in country. And you also, as I understand it, are helping other activists avoid the fate that these two have faced. So, for instance, there is a Guatemalan activist. You have helped him avoid this kind of threat, Juan de Dios Garcia, uh, who actually knew Cáceres, and uh, here's what he had to say about her death. Sadly, as in the case of Berta, there are many sisters and brothers who have given their lives, who are in jail, who have been harassed, practically persecuted by governments and by multinational investors. What can be done to protect them? Well, I think one of the things we truly believe is it's so important that people in the global community really understand what's happening and that we pay attention and that we make calls when these sorts of issues rise, when people can um, act out and sneak into Berta's home in the middle of the night and shoot her in her sleep and say, this is not okay. And we demand justice. We demand that the Honduran government and police really investigate this and find out who the perpetrators are and bring them to justice, that it is so important that we let the world know this is not acceptable. And that question of bringing them to justice, is that in doubt in many of these cases? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, less than a year ago, there was another um, leader within Copin who was killed in an altercation um, when they were peacefully protesting this the dam, the Aguazarca Hydropower Dam. And there's been no one brought to justice from that interaction. It's I'll very common that there never is. I'll say that uh, Brazil, Colombia, the Philippines, Guatemala have also been dangerous countries for activists. Uh, before we go, I, I do want to um, illuminate the, what, the tension that must exist in these places, which is valuing the rights of indigenous people, but also bringing development that can lift people up. And that, you know, those major projects they may be fighting against are also ways of bringing in money and jobs potentially. Um, yes, but Reflect there is on a, that a bit. Yeah. yeah. There is an aspect of environmental justice and social justice in this, though, however, because if you're in the poor rural communities, you're, whether you're an indigenous person or simply someone who's lived in a rural community for an extended period of time, you have a right to that land. You have a right to survive. You have a right to feed yourself. And you can't just be displaced. And certainly in the instance of one um, that you mentioned earlier, Juan del Dios Garcia in Guatemala, those people, over 3,000 indigenous people were simply removed and their land was flooded. Their sacred sites were gone. They weren't compensated for that in any way, nor were they allowed to have a voice saying, here's what we need or here's how we would 
ask you to consider our needs as you make these changes. Yeah, but it's possible when they use their voice that they face death. Uh, thanks for sharing this story with us. Thank you. Justine Reed is vice president of Global Green Grants Fund in Boulder. It was a major supporter of Berta Cáceres, an environmental activist who was murdered in Honduras earlier this month. She has just learned about a murder of Cáceres's colleague this morning. We will be right back with the big disparities between urban and rural health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Your health is highly correlated to the county in which you live, particularly if it's a rural county versus an urban one. This is according to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. It finds the rate of premature death is rising in one out of every five rural counties across the country. Andrea Dukas joins us. She contributed to this county health rankings report. And uh, Andrea, welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Let us get right to an example in Rio Grande County in southern Colorado, which includes towns like Monta Vista and Del Norte. This report shows that the rate of premature death is rising. And for health outcomes overall, it's at the bottom in Colorado, along with Huerfano and Costilla counties. Uh, Among the problem areas you cite, preventable hospital stays, children in poverty and physical inactivity, uh, would you say that those are reflective of other rural areas across the country? Uh, I, at first, I would like to start with just uh, letting your listeners know that um, the County Health Rankings is an, an annual publication that we produce that provides data for every county in the United States, including, of course, the counties in Colorado. Uh, and as you state, yes, we did this year see a pretty stark uh, disparity with respect to premature deaths in uh, rural counties as compared to others. Uh, in Rio Grande County, um, uh, what, you, what you mentioned is correct. Um, I'll also point to a few other social and economic uh, influencers that we know are very important to health that Rio Grande County um, really sort of sh- might want to focus in on uh, as areas for improvement. Uh, so one, uh, for example, is high school graduation rates. Another has to do with uh, rates of unemployment and the number of children in poverty. Um, all of which we know um, uh, limit access to good jobs, limit access to higher incomes, and limit access to opportunity. And all of those are contributors to how long someone lives, basically, how, how healthy someone is. That's correct. It's interesting to contrast some of the counties we mentioned with some of the healthiest counties uh, by your ranking. So Douglas County, Broomfield, Pitkin, Boulder... If you're sensing a theme there, it's that they are comparatively very wealthy counties. And so I suppose no surprise to you that health and wealth are related and that that is borne out in this. Yes, I I mean, I I think that that's that's definitely true. Uh, I do think, though, it is important to, um, to one, focus on the fact that every county, whether it's a rural county or a large urban county or even a suburban county, is, is on its own journey toward health. And I, it's, it's very tempting when you see a county that's sort of ranked low to, to focus in on that low ranking, but it is so critical to, del- to dive in to get a sense of the bigger picture and the fuller picture when it comes to the factors that are keeping us healthy and allowing us to live long and healthy lives. Uh, so, you know, uh, we'll go back to Rio Grande. Even though there are some clear opportunities for improvement and there are challenges in rural communities where you have smaller populations, there are fewer businesses and lower tax bases. And so 
there isn't necessarily as much opportunity um, for investment, but we know that in rural communities, especially with small populations, that they tend to be incredibly resilient. They tend to know each other. It, it tends to be easier to work together to overcome obstacles. Uh, so in Rio Grande County, um, even though there, there's some work to do around improving graduation rates, there's work to do around improving smoking rates, physical inactivity scores are actually quite low. They're doing well um, compared to other counties in Colorado with respect to excessive drinking and, uh, along with it, alcohol-impaired deaths. Um, they're doing relatively well with respect to access to primary care. So there, there are, and um, in, some of the, in some of the areas, um, like preventable hospital stays, um, where with respect to the other counties in Colorado, they appear to be doing worse, that number is actually improving over time. So it's important to make sure that you're, you're capturing the, the whole context of the story. And I'll go ahead and, um, and juxtapose that with Douglas County, which is another county that you mentioned. Yeah, and let me say this, Douglas but, County, but before you do the juxtaposition, sure. it's, really, it's really interesting sure. because what you can do is you can compare county to county when you go online. There's a link to all of this at cprnews.org, and you can, you can see how, for instance, Rio Grande County compares to Douglas County. You can do a deeper dive into your own county. But when you do that comparison, what do you see, Andrea? Oh, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and not only can you compare county to counties within a state, um, for those counties that are on the border, uh, this is especially um, important. You can c- compare counties across states and like counties, or you know, especially with rural counties, like rural counties in other states. But when you do the comparison between Rio Grande and Douglas, for example, um, uh, so some of the areas that uh, Rio Grande is struggling with, with uh, for example, the high school graduation rates, numbers of children in poverty, those are, those are areas that Douglas um, tends to do well in. But there are other areas where Douglas really could, um, could, could stand to improve. Uh, including with its adult smoking rates, with its uh, and this is sort of a sort of interesting one. We have a measure of social associations that is is sort of a proxy for us of social support. And as I mentioned before, rural counties actually tend to tend to score uh, tend to have a little bit more social cohesion. So it's interesting to see that in Douglas County. Um, that's an area where they might be able to improve. That there's less social cohesion in Douglas County, with which is actually more populated. Uh, you know, another interesting uh, insight into Boulder County, which generally is doing well, um, is that there are still issues to broach. Income inequality, you cite, severe housing problems. Lots of people in Boulder County will tell you that. And excessive drinking as well. Uh, can you give me an example of a rural county that has bucked the trend, just uh, really briefly, of the rising um, uh, rate of early death, very quickly? Uh, sure. Well, so there are, there are a few examples. It's sort of hard to pull out one. There, there are certainly examples in every state, including, I'm sure, examples in Colorado. So I would encourage your listeners to visit countyhealthrankings.org to dig into their county uh, information. But there are absolutely examples of, of, urban, of rural counties that have bucked the trend. Um, I'll note again that it's, it's one in five of rural counties that are experiencing ri- rising premature death rates, meaning that four in five rural counties are not seeing that same trend. All right. Thanks so much, Andrea, for, um, I suppose, exposing the tip of the iceberg with us. Well, I appreciate your, your, uh, your having me on your show. Andrea Dukas, she's program officer for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And as we said, there's a link to the new County Health Rankings Report at CPRnews.org.
A listener recently emailed us with a question. How do Colorado's taxes for transportation compare to those in other states? This came up after we ran a two-part series on the state's lack of funding for roads and transit. And today, in our regular feedback segment, Loud and Clear, CPR's Vic Vela, who reported that series, is going to add some perspective. Hi, Vic. Hey, Ryan. So CDOT gets the majority of its funding from state and federal gas taxes. And uh, you told us that Colorado hasn't raised its state gas tax since 92. So the state is funding its roads with 90s money at a time when the population here is booming. Do you know where the state's gas tax ranks nationally, though? Yeah, Ryan, 34 states have gas taxes higher than Colorado's, and many have raised their gas taxes in just the past few years as they've found themselves without enough money to make repairs and improvements. And Colorado's gas tax is lower than neighbors like Wyoming, Utah, and Kansas. Uh, Gas taxes in New Mexico and Arizona are lower, but Arizona, for instance, doesn't have to deal with much wear and tear from winter weather. Well, as we said, Colorado also gets help from the federal gas tax. That's right. And without those funds, roads would be in pretty bad shape because the state provides little funding for transportation compared to others. Uh, For every dollar the state kicks in, the federal government chips in $2. Uh, And that's not the case in Utah and Nebraska. Uh, They are much smaller than Colorado population-wise, but those states come up with more money for transportation. Uh, Utah, for example, puts in almost double the amount of state funding for transportation as Colorado. Um, And as I talked about in my stories, outside of gas taxes, the state uses a complicated budget uh, trigger for transportation funding. Uh, It's supposed to create automatic uh, funding for roads. But the law is in conflict with the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Uh, That's the constitutional amendment that limits the growth of government. Uh, And right now, state government is running up against the Tabor cap. So money that should go to transportation uh, might instead be sent back to taxpayers. Uh, Lawmakers are working on a couple of proposals to free up more money in the state's budget for transportation, uh, but there's no consensus uh, and they wouldn't be permanent fixes. I'll remind people what you reported last week, that right now CDOT only has enough money to maintain the state's highway system in its current condition for the next decade. So could voters get a say in November on how to fund transportation? Yeah, ballot measures in the works that would propose a sales tax hike to fund transportation. Uh, A spokesman for the group pushing for the measure said a sales tax hike polls better than a gas tax hike. Hmm. So there you go. But the head of Colorado's Department of Transportation says he would support a gas tax increase. There's two routes. So CPR's Vic Vela. Keep your feedback coming on Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook. We are CPR News. At desks and kitchen tables across the country, people are scrambling to fill out March Madness brackets before the first round of the men's tournament starts tomorrow. But achieving the perfect bracket, that is picking all 63 games right, is unlikely. More likely winning the Powerball a couple of times. In other words, says CU Boulder math professor Mark Ablowitz, your chances are about nine quintillion to one. But what about getting something less ambitious right, like the Sweet 16? To get from 64 down to 16, very unlikely. Something like uh, 280 trillion to one. 
No wonder no one captured the billion-dollar prize that investor Warren Buffett offered for getting a perfect bracket in 2014. Of course, you can still win your office pool without getting every game right, or you could sit back and watch the University of Colorado men's team play. They drew an eighth seed and are up against Connecticut tomorrow. Connecticut is favored, and even if Colorado wins, they'd likely face the tournament's top team, Kansas, in the second round. But as Ablowitz says, the odds makers aren't always right. Upsets happen all the time. That's why uh, it's so interesting. Well, one last thing before we go. Apartment buildings are going up like crazy in Metro Denver. They help meet the need for more housing, but some observers say the complexes are downright ugly. We're going to talk about that Monday, and we want to know what you think. Is Denver failing at design? What don't you like? What do you like and why? Send us an email to news at CPR.org and feel free to include a photo. That's news at CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner.